The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. You've opened your Bibles to John chapter 2. Let's go ahead and pray, and we'll get into our study. Oh, Father, we love you. We love you. We love your word. It's life. It's sweet to the taste, Lord. It nourishes our souls. It it furnishes us and equips us and empowers us to go out and live lives that are pleasing to you, Lord. So we pray that you would take your word and plant it like a seed into the soil of our hearts. We pray that it would take root that it was result in transformed living that produces fruit in our lives to the praise of your glory. We invite your Holy Spirit to become our teacher in these moments as we share together, as we open the scriptures. May they open our hearts. We pray and ask all these things in your name, Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. <clears throat> Excuse me. Let me start with a question for you this evening. What makes you mad? <laughs> Kind of a weird question, but that's where we're starting. What, what gets under your skin? And of course, there are those, those obvious things that tend to infuriate all of us, right? Sitting in traffic and, and being put on hold on the phone for a long time. That will put any of us in the flesh. But, but it's not just the big things that angry, anger us, but sometimes it's the tiniest annoyances that send us into a fit of rage. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Okay. Okay. On my own here. Let me share. This is my confessional. I'm just going to share one of the things that gets under my skin and, and is not good my, for my emotional well-being. Um, I'm talking about putting together furniture from Ikea. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? You, you get the box, and it never comes put together. And so they've got the instructions. And I don't know about you, uh, but maybe I'm just not gifted in this way. I start putting the thing together and get about halfway into it before I realize that I've done something wrong. And so I have to take it apart, or I put something on backwards. And it doesn't help that the instructions, you know, there's no words in them. That's a problem. And it's just this little drawing of this happy little Swede, you know? And he's got a hammer in his hand, and his thing looks perfect in the drawings. And all of that is just bad for my mental health. And I just wanted to get that out there and share that with you. But you know as well as I do that there are plenty of little things in all of our lives that anger us. But sometimes that anger, when it goes unresolved, when we fail to deal with it, it can have an adverse effect, not just on our mental health, but studies have shown that it can even impact our physical health. According to one study conducted by Harvard University, 10 million adult men in the United States suffer and are physically sick and suffer from a disease that they have labeled intermittent explosive disorder, or IED for short. And we just blow up and we're physically sick because of the anger that resides in our hearts. Other studies have also revealed that bad-tempered people are three times as likely to have heart attacks. But here's something that might surprise you. Not all anger is bad. 
Sometimes it's even good to be angry. There's such thing as righteous indignation that the Bible talks about. In fact, I think you can tell a lot about a person by what makes them laugh and then by what makes them angry as well. And I bring all of that up by way of introduction because today we're going to be talking about this story in which Jesus gets angry. Let's go ahead and read our text there in John 2, beginning in verse 13. It says, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords, and he drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples then remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. I've labeled this section a different side of Jesus. In my Bible, as a heading for this section, it's given the title, Jesus Cleanses the Temple, which is a bit ironic if you think about it, because in the process of cleansing the temple, he actually makes a mess of it. I guess it just goes to show that sometimes, in order to clean house sufficiently, you have to be willing to turn it upside down. If you've ever done any spring cleaning projects in your home, or perhaps if you've ever cleaned out your garage, it seems like an annual project, in my house at least. And the first thing you do is you take everything that's in the garage and you pull it out onto the driveway so you can start from scratch. Well, that's what we have here. Jesus is cleaning house. And, and there are those times in the Gospels where Jesus kind of slips in and out of scenes without anybody noticing that he was there. This is not one of those scenes. <laughs> and let's remember that Jesus' disciples, at this point, they're still new. They haven't been following him for very long. And so let's just play this scene out in our mind's eyes. I can picture them looking on and, and kind of peeking over Jesus' shoulder with quizzical looks in their eyes and curiosity filling their expressions as they're wondering, what's Jesus up to? And they're watching him as he takes these long leather strips and he carefully and methodically begins to braid them together. And they're looking at Jesus' eyes, and it's an expression he's wearing that they're not familiar with. They haven't seen this version of Jesus before, and they're a little leery of even asking him what he's up to, but one of them gets the courage, maybe it's Peter, and he says, hey, Jesus, um, what, are you, what are you making there? Is that like a, a belt or something, the leather? Like, is this an Etsy thing? Is this a side hustle that we're going to use the money to like, fund the ministry? Or what's going on here, Jesus? He doesn't answer. But then their answer comes soon enough as Jesus takes this whip that he's made. He walks into the temple. He cracks the whip. He flips over tables. Feathers are flying. People are running for cover. The, the sound of change can be heard as it jangles off the tables and onto the floor. I mean, this is a side of Jesus that none of them had ever seen before. Throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus portrayed in a, a variety of ways and, and, and in a variety of lights. He is portrayed as the Lamb of God, 
the obedient servant, the beloved son, the good shepherd, the great physician, the friend of sinners, and the compassionate savior. He's gentle Jesus, meek and mild. In paintings, we're used to seeing him surrounded by sheep and children. And so with that as a backdrop, it's, it's hard for some of us to reconcile those pictures with this image of Jesus, right? This is a different Jesus. This is Indiana Jones Jesus cracking the whip. This is MMA Jesus. I don't even know if we're comfortable with this Jesus. Earlier in the chapter, if you were here with us, we saw Jesus turn water into wine. Now, everybody loves that Jesus. That's the Jesus that keeps the party going. That's spring break Jesus. And everybody wants to hang out with that guy. But we don't know about this guy. We're not as comfortable with him. But, but it's not up to us. We don't get to pick and choose which aspects of Jesus we're willing to accept, which we like and which we don't like. You see, the Jesus of the wine is also the Jesus of the whip. The Jesus who keeps the party going is also the Jesus who comes into his father's house and he cleans out the courts. Another picture of this, just to drive home the point. In the fourth and fifth chapters of John's Revelation, the last book in the Bible, we're given this glorious picture of the heavenly scene. And all of the tension and all of the focus in those two chapters is on the throne. And there's the angelic hosts, and they're singing to the one who sits on the throne. And at one point, an angel points to the throne and says to John, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. But in the very next verse, it says, John looked, and he beheld a lamb as though it had been slain. Interesting, because the angel says, behold the lion. And John looks up, and he sees the lamb. Now, those two pictures couldn't be more different from one another. A lion is strong and fierce and powerful and confident. A lion rips its prey to shreds. A lamb, conversely, is the prey. It's meek. It's lowly. Which is Jesus? Is he the lion, or is he the lamb? And of course, the answer is, he's both. Jesus is the lion and the lamb. He's the prince of peace. But he's also the one who comes with the sword to cut away everything that threatens our intimacy with him. Now, the thing about it is, I think we're well acquainted with Jesus the lamb. But sometimes we need to be reminded of the fact that he's also a lion. Do you remember that scene from Oh, I, we were just thinking, talking about it in the back room. Uh, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And, and Aslan is this picture of Jesus, and he's this lion. And at one point, Lucy, one of the characters, asks a question about the lion before she's met him. And she says, is he safe? And the response comes, safe? Of course he's not safe. He's a lion. He's the king of beasts. But he's good. Jesus is the lion. He's not safe, but he's good. To borrow a quote from Dorothy Sayers, though, I am afraid that far too many of us have efficiently, and I quote, pared the claws of the lion of Judah, certified him meek and mild, and recommended him as a fitting household pet for pale curates and pious old ladies. We need to get reacquainted 
with the lion. And it begins with this picture here in John's gospel where Jesus gets angry. Now, let's back up for a moment and let's just deal with this subject. Is it a sin for Jesus to be angry like this? And the answer is no. Not all anger is bad. In fact, anger is just one of the many emotions that we've been given the capacity to feel. And by the way, that ability to feel and to process emotions, it comes from God, who is himself an emotional being. And you, having been created in the image and after the likeness of God, have also been given the capacity to feel. Listen, God is not a robot. He's not removed. He's not detached. In fact, when you look at scripture, you'll often read about God being moved to compassion. This is a, a common emotion that God feels. He's moved to compassion when he sees, sees the needs of his people. You'll also read about God laughing. That's an awesome thing to know that God laughs. If you have a sense of humor, that's from the Lord. And if you don't have a sense of humor, you need to find one because God made us, which proves that he has an incredible sense of humor. I mean, just look at us. He's so incredibly funny. And so God laughs, but he does more than that. We also find him crying. He gets grieved at times. He loves, and yes, he even gets angry. And I bring that up because I think sometimes we fall under this mistaken notion that the more spiritual you become, the more emotionally detached you'll become, and the more unemotional you'll become. And that's simply not true. If anything, the more connected to God you get, the more in touch with your feelings you will be. And there are times when it is right and it is good and it is just for you to be angry. For instance, when you look out and you see the wickedness that is so pervasive in our culture, when you see darkness, when you see depravity, when you see these mass casualty events, when you see someone walk into a school and pull the trigger on little kids, you should get angry. In fact, most of us would agree that if a person can experience these things and see these things and feel nothing, that that person is not emotionally or mentally healthy. The trouble and the trick is this. We need to learn how to differentiate between righteous anger and ungodly or unrighteous anger. Here's how the Apostle Paul put it in his letter to the church at Ephesus. This is Ephesians 4.26. Let's go ahead and read this together out loud. Be angry and do not sin. I think I read that before you were ready. Either that or you weren't with me. Let's read it again. Be angry and do not sin. So it's possible to be angry and yet not sin. It should be noted that most often when we get angry, when I'm building IKEA furniture, I don't think it falls under the category of righteous indignation. Our anger is, more often than not, the out-of-control variety. You know, we fly off the handle. Some people are just angry all the time. They wake up angry. They go to bed angry. They're angry birds. Other people, their anger simmers like a tea kettle. Or maybe you're one of those people, you bury your anger like a volcano. You hold it in 
But then what happens? Eventually, the tea kettle spouts and the volcano erupts. And often, it happens when you least expect it. I came across this article that was talking about how, even to this day, there are still all of these undetonated ammunitions that remain buried throughout much of Europe that were left over from the Second World War. And occasionally, what will happen is someone will be doing their thing, or maybe it's a construction project, and they'll accidentally dig up one of these undetonated bombs, and they'll accidentally set it off, and they'll get blown to smithereens. And I see in that a, a picture of what happens when, when we try to bury our anger, and we say, I'm fine. No, it's nothing. I'm good, you know. And what happens, eventually that anger simmers over and detonates. And usually, it happens on an unintended target. There's collateral damage. But God's anger is different. It doesn't work like that. He doesn't fly off the handle. He doesn't lose his temper like we, we do. I mean, wouldn't that be just a terrible thing if that's how God was? What if God woke up and he was just in a foul mood on a given day? I mean, he's just. He's in a bad mood. He's taking planets, and he's throwing them around. And he just sees you, and he's like, oh, there you are. And he just takes a lightning bolt, and poof. What happened to Bill? I don't know. I think God was angry. Ah! No, no, no. God's anger is always measured. It's justified. And it's perfectly righteous. The Bible says that God is slow to anger and full of compassion. So if that's true, then Jesus' anger here is justified. So let's talk about this. What makes God mad? Or in this case, what makes Jesus mad? And what we find is the thing that made Jesus so angry is what he saw happening in the courts of the temple, a place that he referred to as my father's house. The temple is the literal place where God established for his people to meet with him. It's where his glory, his Shekinah glory dwelt. It's where he chose to meet with the people of God. Now, the temple itself was made up of two distinct parts. You had the temple proper, the building itself. And now, outside of that, you had the inner courts. And then there was a wall. And then you had the court of the women out beyond that. And then beyond that was another wall. And that was a section known as the court of the Gentiles. Okay, And only Jews could enter into those inner courts. But the Gentiles, who had become believers, so if you had become a believer in the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, you could still worship. And you could go to the court of the Gentiles. And you could there commune with God. And as all the pilgrims we're reading about here who had converged on the city of Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover feast, just, just think of all these, these worshipers gathering there on the Temple Mount. And, and when they gathered there, one of the first things that they would do is they would go and they would buy a, a lamb that they could sacrifice as an offering to the Lord, because you had to bring a sacrifice. And, and it had to be without blemish. So instead of kind of dragging your lamb throughout the desert on the long journey, there was a convenience of just buying a pre-certified, blemish-free lamb there from the temple priests who had been raised there in Bethlehem by the, the shepherds of Bethlehem. And it was pre-blessed. So you knew it would be accepted. And so most people would just buy their lambs there. 
The other thing they were required to do when they, when they arrived in Jerusalem is everybody had to pay a temple tax. Now, most of the people lived outside of Jerusalem, and they lived in the Roman Empire. So all they had were Roman coins. But this posed a problem. You see, pressed onto those coins was the image of the emperor of the day, an emperor, mind you, who claimed to be God. And so it wouldn't be right to use those coins in the service of the temple. You couldn't give that to God. And so the Jews, again, out of convenience, they, they play, provided a way to exchange your Roman coins for Jewish coins that could be used to pay the temple tax. So Jesus didn't have a problem with either of those things. And they weren't wrong. But what he had a problem with was not what they were doing, but where they were doing it and how they were doing it. You see, the place where all of this commerce had been set up, where this exchange of coins was taking place, they had set up shop right there in the middle of the court of the Gentiles. Now, this wasn't a place where they were supposed to be. They were supposed to be beyond that. This was supposed to be part of the house of worship. But at some point, my guess is, out of just a desire for convenience or maybe to make a little bit more money to get closer to the temple, one guy snuck into the court of the Gentiles and he set up his shop. And nobody said anything. And so others soon followed. And before long, the whole court of the Gentiles had been transformed into like a bazaar or a flea market. So this is what made Jesus mad. And beyond that, it wasn't just where they were doing this, but what they were doing. They were charging exorbitant prices for these sheep. And then in their exchange of the, the money, they were gouging their own people by charging exorbitant exchange rates. Of course, this is what infuriated Jesus. His house was supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. Israel was supposed to be a light to those surrounding nations so that they would come and that they could meet the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But they turned the house of prayer into a flea market. Instead of praying for the people, the priests were praying on the people. They were causing the people to not want to come and to worship. And so Jesus saw the greed in their hearts, and he saw people being taken advantage of, and it was more than he could bear. And he acted. Now, let's just imagine for a moment that you were one of those Gentile converts who'd converted to Judaism, and you're making your way to Jerusalem for the very first time. You've heard stories and rumors about the, the grandeur and the beauty of the temple. But now you're seeing it for the very first time. And you look up to Mount Zion, and you see it on the top of that peak. And it surpasses even your wildest imaginations. It takes your breath away. Then you make your way there with excitement in your heart, and you're excited to worship. But you find out that you need, to, you need to buy this sheep. And before you can even do that, instead of being greeted by the sounds of praise and prayer, instead, you find that your nose is assaulted by the smell of manure. You make your way over to one of the money exchangers, but only to find out that you're getting ripped off on the exchange rate. Then when you buy your sheep, you get ripped off again. By the time you're finally ready to worship, you keep getting interrupted by people who were walking through the courts of the Gentiles and using it as a, as a uh, shortcut to get where they wanted to go. At this point, your heart's no longer engaged. As you get up to leave, maybe you even step in a mess that was left by one of those animals. 
Your whole worship experience has been soured. And this is what got to the heart of Jesus. It infuriated him. And he begins to flip over the tables. He begins to drive out the money changers. And he says to those getting, making their way through as a shortcut, you better not even think about it. And they clear out. And at this moment, it floods into the minds of the disciples. This, this passage of Psalm 69, you can find it quoted there in verse 17, where it says, his disciples remembered as they were taking this in that it was written, zeal for your house has consumed me. For centuries, the Jews had held this psalm, Psalm 69, of which they were remembering, as a messianic psalm. And they understood that one of the things the Messiah would do when he came is he would cleanse the temple and he would restore pure worship of the one true God. When we talk about zeal, we're talking about power and passion and purity. It is a white, hot, burning passion for the glory of God. It is not unlike a fire. And this is what consumed Jesus. Through the prophet Malachi, he spoke these words over the the Messiah. and, And I'd love it again if we could read this out loud together. Who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. That's Malachi 3, 2 through 4. This imagery, this concept, this picture of a launderer's soap. Cleaning. This is the work of the Messiah. He is a refiner's fire. And let's drill down into that word picture for a moment. When you think about the refiner's fire, it's a familiar metaphor in scripture. Gold is a precious metal. You dig it up from the earth. But in order for it to be refined and beautified and to really draw out its beauty, it has to undergo a process, right? When it's first extracted from the ground, it doesn't always look like gold. It doesn't look like what you see in the jewelry store. And oftentimes, it's marred by imperfections and impurities. So the gold must pass through the refiner's fire. This is the process that it undergoes. And this process, as it's described, what they do is they take the gold and they put it into a furnace. And they heat that furnace up until the gold becomes molten liquid hot. And what this does is it causes all of the impurities, all of the dirt, and all of the imperfections to rise to the surface. And then the goldsmith has a special tool, and he wipes away all of the dross, and then he puts it back into the fire again, repeats the process. More impurities come to the surface, and he repeats this process until, it is said, he can look into the gold, and he can see his own reflection in the gold. And that's what's going on here. They are passing through the refiner's fire. He's driving out the money changers. He's not cursing them. He's cleansing them and removing the dross. And here's kind of where we'll make the turn, and we'll begin to see the application for our lives. What he did then, he does now. What he did with them, he does with us. Look with me at verse 18. The Jews then responded to him, and they said, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all of this? 
And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and I will rise it again in three days. He replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. And are you going to raise it in three days? But listen, the temple he had spoken of was his body. And after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. They wanted to know, who gave you the right or the authority to come through and to clean house like this? And Jesus, he pointed to himself and he said, destroy this temple and I'll rise it again in three days. That's all the proof you're going to get. Now, of course, they thought he was referring to the physical building that stood before them, but he was talking about another temple. He was talking about the temple of his spirit, the building that stood before them. Ultimately, it was just a type. It was a shadow. The whole thing pictured Jesus. In fact, the glory that once resided in that temple had long before vacated the premises. The glory of God wasn't in the physical temple. It stood before them in the person of Jesus. And he went to the cross, and he paid for their sins. And three days later, he rose from the dead. And then after that, the Bible tells us that he put his spirit in his followers, and he made them, that is us, his temple. You see, in the Old Testament, God's presence dwelt in a physical location. It rested in the temple. But under the new covenant, his presence isn't in a place, but it dwells in us. This is a, a, a truth that we need to really drive home. I mean, sometimes we think of this place, this church, and we have a beautiful, beautiful building and grounds here at the church. But this isn't the house of God. Sometimes we'll say, you know, oh, I'm going to the house of God today. And I understand what we mean when we say that. But there's nothing particularly significant or special about, you know, these walls. This is just a tilt-up building. The real temple is you. If you are a believer in Jesus, then God's spirit dwells in your heart. Listen to how Paul put it in his letter to the Corinthians. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. Let's read this out loud. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. 1 Corinthians 6, 19, and 20. Again, God's house isn't about a place. It's about a people. It's me, and it's you. And so if that's true, then here's the real question we need to be considering together this evening. What do the courts of your heart look like today? You see, as we've already seen, Jesus isn't afraid to, to rattle our cage, so to speak. He's not opposed to flipping over a table or two if that's what's necessary, right? Because sometimes you got to be willing to make a mess before you can clean things up. It's a little bit like this. At home, I have four kids, but of those four, two of them are teenagers. As I asked for earlier, you need to be praying for me, right? And what happens if you have a teenager, this will land with you, it'll sit with you, resonate. Um, you'll ask them to clean their rooms. And my kids, you know, they'll, they'll do that if we ask them. And then I have to walk them through, OK, now do this. Now pick that up. You know what it's like. Eventually, though, their room will get clean. And it's glorious. And it's wonderful. I love walking into the room. Wow, you actually have a floor. This is amazing. 
But then what happens is by the following week, I mean, just seven days later, you wouldn't imagine. It's like, what happened? It, you walk in there, you can no longer see the floor. It looks like a bomb has gone off in their bedroom. I mean, this is like Iraq, Kuwait. This is like a, a mess. And I think, what? How did we get here? I think the worst part about it is they're like totally unfazed by the whole thing. They're comfortable with the mess. And you know how it happens? It happens little by little, one thing at a time. They take off a dirty shirt, throw it on the ground. It's just one shirt. And then there's dirty socks. And then there's a towel that gets left on the bed. And then a cup that lets, gets left on the nightstand. And so on and so forth until it looks like what I just described to you. And so often, the same thing can happen in our hearts. Over time, we accumulate a mess. In my library, I have a book called Unchristian. It's a book that analyzes the results of an extensive nationwide study conducted by the Barna Group. The author set out to compare the lives of Christians and non-Christians. And so they polled Christians, those who said they were believers, to see how different their life was from those who claimed to be unbelievers. And here's what the study found. The, the study found that Christians are just as likely as non-Christians to visit pornographic websites, get drunk, do illegal drugs, lie, and try to get even with someone who they felt has wronged them. And my question is, how does this happen? How do we end up looking just like the world that Jesus came to deliver us from? And again, it's just like that bedroom. It happens slowly inch by inch, little by little, as we allow little sins to move in and little compromises to go unchecked in our hearts. And if we're not careful, what can end up happening is our courts of our heart can end up looking just like the temple courts in Jerusalem. Listen, I'm not here to heap condemnation on you today. The truth of the gospel is Jesus loves you just the way you are. Somebody say amen to that. But what is equally true is that while Jesus loves us just as we are, he loves us way too much to leave us as we are. So when he comes to us, he moves in and he begins to clean house. Go back with me to that earlier miracle in John's gospel, earlier in the chapter where he turns water into wine. In a lot of ways, that pictures conversion. He begins a new work in our lives. But the miracle of conversion is followed by the cleansing. After conversion comes the cleansing. After the wine comes the whip. Something worth noting is that this isn't the only time that Jesus did this in the temple. You fast forward in the Synoptic Gospels, and you read about a mirror experience or event. It transpires at the end of Jesus' ministry. Right before he goes to the cross, he walks into the temple. And I believe these are two separate events, the event that John describes here and the ones that Matthew and, and Mark and Luke describe because of where it happens. And he goes in and he cleans house again. The stuff that he'd cleared out three years prior had moved back in. And again, I find the same thing happens with me, which is why we need to continually get in the habit of inviting Jesus into the temple of our hearts in order that he might remove everything that doesn't resemble him or his heart. You know, one of the, the bolder prayers 
that you could pray as a child of God is the one that David prayed at the end of Psalm 139. Perhaps you know it, but it goes like this. Let's read it together out loud. This is in your notes as well. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. This ought to be our prayer. Lord, search me. Walk up and down and in and out of every single room and see the parts of me that ought not to be there. Here's the keys to the closet, Lord. Check every room. Open every trunk. I give you an open invitation to clean house. That's what's needed in the church today. It's time for Jesus to come through and to clean house. And that begins with us. Now, let's finish up our text, beginning in verse 23. It goes on to say, now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing, and they believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. I love the fact that immediately after he cleanses the temple, Jesus goes and he begins to minister to those who are in need. He finds the sick. He finds the outcasts. He finds the very ones that God sent him to redeem. And he begins to restore sight to blind eyes. He begins to lift up those who are lame in their feet, and he heals them. This is why he cleansed the temple, so that the healing could flow, so that the ministry could happen unhindered. And John tells us that many people came to believe in him because they saw the signs. But then in the next breath, it goes on to say, but Jesus didn't entrust himself to them. He didn't need anyone to testify of him because he knew what was in man. Now, what's interesting about that is it says they believed in him, but he didn't believe in them. The exact same word gets used. And I think the phrase that troubles me the most is, The one at the end there in verse 25, where it says, he knew what was in man. See, Jesus, we we can ask him to search us, but the truth of the matter is, he already knows what's inside of us. There's nothing that is hidden from him. And that means he sees all of the mess. We could try to hold him out. Hold on, let me clean up. But the truth is, he sees it. He sees the filth. He sees the things we try to hide. But here's the beautiful news, and we're going to land with this thought. He sees you inside and out. He sees the good, the bad, and the ugly. And we think that would cause him to want to run away from us. But he still comes to us. He knows us better than we know ourselves. And he loves us anyways. And he's not just kind of in love with you. God is passionately, zealously, wonderfully, madly in love with you. He knows you. He knows everything that you've done. He knows the secrets that you didn't even want to tell anybody else. Nobody knows this about you. Jesus knows about that thing, and he still loves you. And you know what? He proved it when he went to the cross for you. 
Because in this scene, what we see is Jesus taking the whip and he's cleansing the temple with the whip. And we say, okay, I've got to get out the whip and I've got to beat myself and I've got to really make myself pay so that I don't let that sin in. But you know what happened when Jesus went to the cross? He laid on that rock and he allowed them to take the whip and beat his back with the whip that you deserve in order that your heart might be cleansed. Somebody say, praise Jesus. The refiner's fire, the fire of God's wrath fell on him that you might be purified. And so that now we can say, by his stripes were healed. The temple of our heart has been cleansed. It's been washed. It's been healed all because of Jesus. And so this picture, which is jarring, which is shocking, has a glorious and beautiful ending that Jesus invites us into a place of wholeness and healing, where he might reside in our hearts and might minister to those who need our help because he lives in us. He heals us in order that we might become agents of healing. He saves us in order that we might become vessels of redemption in this world. That's how it works. And so praise the Lord for the healing that he brings to our hearts. Will you pray with me? Thank you, Father, for this word tonight. And I know it's been a heavy word for us. Lord, and we do invite you in these moments to walk up and down each and every aisle and to cleanse hearts. Lord, would you do what only you can do? Would you heal us? Would you make us clean? Lord, would you purify our hearts? Purify us, Lord. Let us be as gold tried by a fire, set apart for you, Lord. We love you, Jesus. We love you, Lord. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.